This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I've been looking forward to this discussion for some time. I say that an awful lot, but in this case, I really, really, really mean it. Dr. Susanna Stoika is joining us on our program. Uh, She has an interesting uh, gift that she was born with, and it's the ability to really detect irregularities or stresses in the human energy field and to correct them. We'll talk with her about that and um, about a number of other interesting areas of uh, discussion, too. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. That kind of ability, being born with that, what was that like? Uh, In the beginning, I didn't know about it. I was uh, seemingly doing my first healing when I was seven years old. Uh, My mom walked into a window and cut her forehead, and it was a lot of bleeding. And uh, because my father would faint if he saw blood, he asked me as a seven-year-old to bandage her, and I still remember needing to go on the wound and closing it. Uh, didn't think too much about it. Uh, years later, when finally I discovered that I was doing healing as an adult, I told my father about it, and he told, oh, you were doing it when you were seven years old. By the time we got to the doctor, the wound was closed, and the doctor told me to go back to whoever did that. And uh, he was very proud to tell the doctor that it was his seven-year-old. So uh, I discovered much later what I was doing, and that was quite a trip to accept it because I, being an engineer as a educational background, you are in a completely different world. Uh, while engineering is very precise and you have proof, healing is more uh, a right brain thing. Uh, you you have to base all your work in your intuition. And you really have to have a good intuition to be able to work with people. Mm. So it is. it was quite a trip to accept my, my gift. But I am very, very, very uh, grateful for it and for all the stories that uh, I have with people who got better. I am really indeed grateful for it. So you've dealt with people who have had some, in some cases, some really chronic illnesses. Yes. Uh, One of the things I did uh, while I was an engineer, I was always also working uh, after hours 
in a medical practice. And one of the things that I did was to help doctors diagnose which was the main problem when somebody was chronically ill. Because when somebody neglects to take care of an illness, actually it spreads around the system and more and more organs are out of whack. So it's very difficult to diagnose medically what is the most important thing. And I can see it because uh, in the energy field, I can perceive kind of a timestamp and I know what happened first, what happened next, and I can tell doctors what the kind of tests to do to get immediately to the main thing. And when you pull the rug from that main thing, the person gets uh, very fast, much uh, better. So it's uh, really a nice thing to be able to collaborate with doctors yeah. uh, because they, uh, people need much less uh, tests. We can get immediately to the cause of the problem. And uh, as you know, when somebody is uh, really sick, finding the cause of the problem is very difficult. So I can help doctors with that as well as uh, helping balance the energy field. What's interesting is that we are programmed for healing. Our system is programmed to be healthy. And uh, when we are under stress or uh, we suffer a big shock, uh, this energy field kind of gets tight and cannot function properly. But once a healer comes in and relaxes the field and balances it to work as it's supposed to be, our innate healing system takes over. So the healing healer basically doesn't heal. The healer is an enabler for the energy system to be able to work again properly. One of the things in your background and in your life, you've had the experience of suffering a double concussion. Yes, I did. I uh, fell on ice twice in the same day. I fell backwards from a standing position, nothing on my head, on cement. And the second time I uh, uh, checked out. So it was pretty bad. By the time I had the second uh, injury, I uh, couldn't remember words in any of the languages I speak, and I speak very well three and a few more were not so well, and uh, it took me years to recover. And I was lucky because by that time I knew a lot about brain injuries because I had a special knack of working with brain injuries, which is very interesting. So in the end, I found myself uh, the way to health by choosing the right uh, professionals, by doing what I knew from my experience, I recommended to others to do. So it was quite a battle. Mm, it certainly sounds like it. We're talking with Dr. Susanna Stoika on our program. Uh, Dr. Stoika is uh, sharing information with us. Uh, interesting discussion. We talked about this idea of you having suffered this uh, double concussion. Um, the impact that that had on your everyday life you uh, just touched upon in our discussion um, what was it that really um, helped you that you looked to be able to use to 
help others. Because one of the things that came out of that whole situation, as I understand it, was your book. Uh, actually, several books. Uh, one of the books is uh, Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life, in which I put down all my uh, tools that I used to recover both from the brain injury and the other uh, injuries that I suffered at the same time, because you can imagine falling backwards on cement, I had basically my whole system uh, injured. Uh, One of the things that happen with people is that when they have a, a, a brain injury, they are not able to Uh, judge what things are really helpful for them and what not, and they are sent from one practitioner to the other, and most of them are not useful. So the uh, Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life uh, basically shows people what can they do to be prepared to help doctors to do a better diagnosis, what to do immediately after brain injury to limit the effects of brain injury, which basically means brain swelling, which does most of the damage, and then how to improve cognitive abilities at any age. And one of the things that I used to recover my cognitive abilities was cooking, which is very interesting. I wouldn't have expected it, but my family wanted me to cook again because I liked my cooking, yet it was much healthier than going out to restaurants. So slowly, slowly, I started cooking. And I found that cooking, because I had to go and uh, buy stuff, which made me having to recognize the different things I needed to buy, then I had to cook them and find a way to cook without having a problem when somebody interrupted me. And then uh, having the healthy food, which is very important for brain recovery, All of these together really helped me in my recovery process. So uh, having this uh, extremely good experience, I decided to write a series of therapeutic cookbooks, which are increasingly more difficult and are written in a way uh, that people with brain injury can really use them. And these books are very well received. People really like them. Uh, I had feedback from therapy places, brain therapy places. Oh, finally, we needed such a book. So, in fact, I have six books uh, for brain injury. Wow. It's very impressive. Dr. Susanna Stoika is talking with us on our program. One of the thoughts that I had... Um, in having this discussion today is also to talk about this test that is available to detect concussion in a way that's said to be better than standard imaging. How does that work? Oh, the the blood test? Yes. Oh, that's a very interesting thing. Um, They uh, found that there are certain uh, proteins that come uh, are changed when you have a brain injury. And they tested all enzymes, and they tested all sorts of enzymes. Uh, it's similar with the test for uh, heart attack. So they were looking of, of a, uh, and they based the test on the knowledge of the heart attack test. 
And they found that certain enzymes are, are changed, are much higher, even if the, a person has a different injury, the brain injury, in the case of brain injury, is much higher. And they, are, they want to use this test to basically sort out the people who really had a brain injury and people who really didn't have a concussion. They fell, but they didn't have a concussion. And they are having pretty good results. The correlation with MRIs and CT scans is pretty impressive. That is very interesting. And, I mean, is this something that's um, unique and unique to this country, or is this something that's being used in other parts of the world? Oh, it's used in other parts of the world, too. The people are very excited about it, and they are working on uh, a reliable blood test. We'll continue in our chat with you, Susanna Stoika. Interesting uh, discussion that we're having. Hopefully folks listening to us are finding the chat as fascinating as I am. Have more to talk with uh, Susanna about on our program. We're talking with Dr. Susanna Stoika on our program. Uh, Dr. Stoika is uh, sharing information with us. Uh, interesting discussion. We talked about this idea of you having suffered this uh, double concussion this could be huge because they could test immediately people. What happens uh, when you have a brain injury? Some of them go undetected, and they can go undetected for years. And people don't know about it. They, they are impaired. They find ways around their brain injury. But if these people are uh, under stress for a long time or they have a shock in their lives, these brain injuries can pop up, and I have seen as a healer, I can detect past brain injuries, but mainstream medicine cannot connect a problem which a person has today with a past brain injury. So being able to detect the brain injury right away, even if it doesn't show up on a, on a CT scan or on an MRI, it's a huge thing because then the person can go and rest, can do the right uh, measures to limit the effect of that injury. Mm. It's huge. It's huge. And I, I wish I could work with that, those doctors because I could, using my uh, capability of detecting uh, these silent brain injuries would be extremely important for uh, the development of this test. Sure, because you also could have, you know, Things like testing for heart attacks, um, I guess even electrolyte levels as well? Uh, I can test uh, uh, irregularities in the energy field, and I can relate which part of the field, of the field is out of uh, balance. And I can tell doctors, test for such and such an organ, and probably a test which shows such and such a thing would uh, give you the right result. For example, years ago I had a doctor friend who uh, called me up and told me, my son is behaving really strangely. Could you please come and see him? And as soon as I started uh, feeling his field, uh, those times I still worked one-on-one. -on -one. These days I work at a distance. So, But at that time, I, I uh, as soon as I started Test, checking him, I uh, felt that he had a brain injury, and he kept falling asleep, which is the typical of brain-injured people. 
the brain tries to shut out the outside world. So uh, I woke him up and I said, did you have a brain injury? And do you have headaches? Because I could see that he had an internal breathing. And he confirmed, and I told his dad, let's get to the hospital right away. And uh, he said, can't we wait till tomorrow morning? And I said, no, we have to go. He has a very slow brain bleed, but he, he has to be at the hospital. So we went to the hospital, and his dad asked me, what test should we do? And I said, tell them that he had a slow uh, brain bleed, and it's still happening. They did the MRI test, and they decided, because it was so slow, that this kid had a, had a brain injury, but the bleeding stopped. And mm-hmm. they wanted to release him from the hospital. Mm-hmm. The father called me up and asked me, what, what should he do? Should he take his son home? And I said, no, uh, leave him there for another 24 hours, because in 24 hours the image would change, and they would see that he has uh, slow bleeding still. Next day, he comes, uh, the father and mother comes to the hospital, and they found the beds empty. And, uh, of course, you can imagine the scare. They ask what happened, and the, uh, this young man was in surgery. They said by next morning, he was unconscious. And a few hours later, he came out of surgery. They released the pressure in his brain, clamped the bleeding, and he was fine. And the doctor, the surgeon came in and told him if he would have uh, taken his son home, the son would have been dead by, by that morning. Wow. Yeah. Another case, I had a, a person in, uh, of all places in Europe, uh, and uh, she had a brain bleed. She had an MRI, and they could see the brain bleed. Uh, the family called me up. I was able to stop the bleeding, and then she had another MRI, and they could confirm that it stopped. Very powerful. I mean, the things that you're sharing with us, and you think about, you know, this kind of testing uh, that's being talked about, and as I understand, this is something that's in a testing phase at uh, this point with, I guess it's Abbott's uh, laboratory. So yeah, they are working with uh, with the San Francisco School of Medicine in uh, with a, uh, Dr. Manley. Uh, Jeffrey Manley is the one who is heading off this research. It'd be certainly interesting to see exactly how that uh, does pan out. Dr. Stoika has uh, joined us on our program and is sharing information. Uh, touched upon a little bit in her uh, background, uh, having suffered a uh, double concussion. Uh, She has authored a number of books, including a book entitled Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life, How to Recover and Thrive After Concussion. And concussion is a very, very popular topic in a lot of different areas um, these days. Uh, your website, by the way, is Healing Brain Injury. That's all as one word. dot com, and there's all kinds of information that is available there. I want to touch upon something that, when you mention the word napping, you always get a reaction from people. <laughs> I find the reaction to be, 
anywhere from people who will immediately start to laugh to the people who start to talk about napping almost like they believe it's a religion. Uh, you know, it's something that's so key and a part of their lives. There's a study out that talks about napping actually appearing to lower the risk of strokes as well as heart attacks. What's your reaction to that? I think that uh, it has a uh, validity because what happens in today's world, we are working very long hours, longer and longer hours. We have all sorts of sources of data. So we have our computer, iPad, iPhone, uh, is we are bombarded by information, and that is very stressful for the brain. When we are stressed, what happens? We are uh, you, your body uh, would generate the cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Now, if we go and nap, we get into uh, calming our body, reducing this cortisol in our system, which is not very healthy. And uh, people who really are power nappers, which some people can sleep 10 minutes and they are fresh, some people need to sleep half an hour in order to uh, feel good. But these people you will see uh, uh, before and after, and they are a different person after they nap. And it makes a lot of sense for uh, for brain health, for general health, because if you have too much cortisol in your system, first of all, you get a big belly. And uh, we know how many people are, are fighting with it. So there is a lot of stress in our lives, and napping uh, helps with uh, calming down our system. So it's taking a break, literally, from this stress that so many of us have in our lives on a daily basis? Yes. And one would think this is such a simple concept. Why is it that some people may think, ah, that can't really have a real serious impact? First of all, we don't have the tradition in this country. In Mediterranean countries, a siesta is something typical. People just, businesses shut down and people go and rest. That was a traditional thing. Uh, but today, people are so driven to be efficient and more efficient and more efficient. This time for napping disappeared. Most of the people would have their lunch in front of their computer while still working, which is very unhealthy. So we are not used to it. And in a world where where people are appreciated for working 25 hours in a 24-hour day, (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, uh, just not accepted. It's mm-hmm. considered as shameful, as uh, childish, as a uh, sign of old age, whatever you want to, to say. So we are not used to it, and people don't accept what they are not used to. So this idea of the power nap that some people talk about, where it's, you know, eh, just give me 20 minutes and you know I'm going to feel completely refreshed. That's a valid thing? 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, if people are ashamed of uh, sleeping, they can get and have a good power walk and it will they will get a, not the full benefit, but some of the benefit of snapping. Hmm. And this break from stress is going to reduce your overall levels of stress. Of course. Mm-hmm. You calm your system down. Mm-hmm. And then the key thing is not just calming your system down, but trying to keep it that way. Yeah, that's, uh, then you get into meditation, into stretching, like yoga, uh, tai chi, those all all the systems which are slow movement, not the yoga which is in hot environment and do, done fast. The traditional yoga, it's really helpful for reducing the amount of stress, and it's known. People reduce their blood pressure by meditating and doing yoga. It's a known side effect. Very interesting discussion. Dr. Susanna Stoika, our guest, thank you very much for uh, joining us, sharing the information you have. Uh, As I mentioned, you've authored a number of books, including Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life, How to Recover and Thrive After Concussion. The uh, website that I mentioned earlier for you at healingbraininjury, that's all as one word, dot com. Thank you for joining us and providing this information. Certainly, we wish you the best of health. Thank you so much for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share my information, which is a a passion of mine. Thanks so much for joining us on our program, everybody. Hopefully, you put those clocks ahead. We're in the 6 o'clock hour of our program this Sunday morning. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm looking forward to this discussion because the gentleman who is joining us is an interesting background. Uh, He is a co-author of Aftershock, The Human Toll of War, Haunting World War II Images by America's Soldier Photographers. Now, just saying that title probably gets your attention and also kind of gets you wondering. A lot of people think, especially at this time of the year, they sort of take a, a time to pause and think of really what we're talking about when we talk about war and its images and the aftermath. And obviously, too, with um, the impact that this has had on so many veterans in this country who are alive and are dealing with various issues and the like, it's uh, something that kind of stays very much in our thoughts. But this is a very interesting publication. Now, I'm very pleased to have Rich... Kahan. Yeah, it is Kahan. Right. Okay. What does it mean for you at this point? And what's, I guess, what's the anticipation like? They still have great meaning to people, and they have lives of their own. And um, I wrote this book so that people would would think about, you know, big issues, uh, issues about war and peace, and um, and so I'm just really interested. I've I've seen an advanced copy of the book, and I'm very pleased with it. Um, and I'm just I'm really looking forward to seeing its effect. The books are like children, are like people, because they go out into the world, and you 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 really have no idea how they'll grow up. And um, the release is the day that, in a sense, a book is born. And, and I'm I'm fascinated to see this book. Uh, to me, is is very profound and um, it's disturbing, and it makes you think about war, and it makes you think about life. And I can't wait to share it with people. 
Tell us about your co-author in this venture. Uh, I've, I've worked for years, uh, for almost 20 years, with uh, a man by the name of Michael Williams. We're, we're Chicago-based, and we've been called picture historians, which is a term that I had never really heard before. Some um, book reviewer called us that. What we do generally is we take large picture collections um, and try to make sense and try to find the stories of these collections. Uh, we recently wrote a book a couple of years ago called Un-American, which is a book about the incarceration of Japanese Americans, and that was based on government photographs of um, the years that Japanese Americans were forcibly removed from their homes and taken uh, to incarceration centers. And uh, I guess we're continuing the story in a way because this is a book of government photos taken of the very final year of World War II. It, it starts on January 1st, 1945, and ends at the very end of December of 1945, and really takes a critical look of what the world looked like that year. It's a, it's a pivotal year in, in, in our history. Um, everything changed. Uh, world War II ended, and many of the forces that still, still not define us, but forces that we still deal with, um, uh, Vietnam, uh, uh, Israel, um, China, uh, Europe uh, were set in motion that year. So even though this book is about the end of World War II, it's not so much a, a war book as a look at the effect of war and, and how the end of World War II uh, is relevant today. You know, you mentioned 1945, and 1945 realistically was one of the most violent years in, in history. It was. You know, World War II is coming to a close. At that time, you have a situation where Germany is basically in tatters, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, Japan was bombed. Concentration camps are opened. Can we realistically, in the day and age where we live, fully comprehend what that was like? You know, I think that was the most surprising part of the book. I was born in 1953, just a few years after the end of World War II. And, um, and the wars that we have fought um, have all been very isolated and concentrated on small places. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but obviously, that can turn into world wars pretty easily. There, there are still so many alliances in the world today. And, and uh, obviously, if uh, uh, Iran is attacked um, it brings in so many different forces. So unfortunately, I think this could happen again. And um, I wrote this book so that people will be sobered over the possibility of what what small wars can become. And, and that's a terrible term to use, the word small wars, because people who are involved in those small wars are as traumatized as um, people in, in large world wars, but but it can happen, and I, I just I want people. You know, we, we always hear the phrase that uh, wars are generational, and 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 I just don't want the new generations to ever forget what World War II was because it's a very important tale, and um, and I think that um, you know the the book is filled with over two hundred photographs, but each photograph is really researched. So I, I want people to see it more than anything else, and then I want them to learn about each photograph and how they work together. How did you come up with the photographs that you're able to use in this book? My colleague, Michael Williams, and I, and, and Mark Jacob, who's a third co-author, um, uh, we work 
a lot at the National Archives um, in College Park, Maryland. People know the National Archives at the building in downtown Washington, and there are records there, but most of the records are in College Park, Maryland. And um, we spent weeks there uh, looking at World War II photographs uh, because we think the war is so important, and we really determined that we wanted to focus on 1945. Um, this, this group of um, Army photographers that the book is based on are, are very famous for their photographs of D-Day and for their action photographs from the Africa in 42 and all over the world in 42, 43, 44. But they're not as well known for these pictures that show the aftermath of war. And those were the pictures that really talked to us um, uh, to see what Germany looked like after the bombings and um, you know what, what Manila looked like. I think, I think one of the big surprises is how how widespread the war is, and, and, and we actually we, we show the photographs in chronological order so that you literally go from the Battle of Bulge on January 2nd or 3rd to uh, Burma on January 4th, you know, so it's, it's, you're, you're bouncing around the country in a, in a way, uh, bouncing around the world, and I think that's important for people. I, it's discombobbling for the reader, but I, I want readers to understand this was a different kind of war than they're used to. So if there's eh, 250 images that are included in the book, right? you went through... A couple hundred thousand. It's, it's, it's hard to uh, know because the photographs at the National Archives are kind of mixed uh, between World War II and the Korean War. I know that sounds strange, but they are. And so it was hard to keep count. Um, but we looked at, mostly we looked at little books that had contact sheets and the contact sheet is a look at a photograph the same size that it was taken but it's a tiny little print and so we looked at those photographs and 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 what i think was most exciting was the national archives gave us permission to then once we had picked the 250 pictures to then literally we found the negative of each photograph and the negatives I hope I hope readers I hope listeners still remember when negatives are, but but these negatives were generally about um, three inches wide by uh, three inches four inches wide by three inches deep. So they were l- large negatives, not the kind of negatives that we were used to as we were kids. Mm-hmm. And we could put them on a scanner and scan the negatives. And scanners and negatives love each other because they're both about the negatives have tremendous photographic information, and the scanner is can pick up things that that no print no old print could pick up and so you see these photographs in a way that nobody has ever seen them including the photographer so it's been very exciting the quality of of what's there most of the pictures have never been seen before but some have some very famous pictures of the the concentration camps being emptied and you'll see the detail of those pictures in a way that 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 has never that have never been seen before Doing the story or stories behind each photo, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was that like? And why did you tackle that task? Well, the photographers actually, in this case, left quite a bit of basic information about the photographs. They, they left the date of the photograph, and they were like journalists. They, they usually left the name of the subject of the photograph. Uh, but that was about all that they left, and, and that's that's a great start. Um, so we wanted to fill in the context. We wanted to to explain each picture, uh, and 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 that took us on, you know, obviously a, a whole history lesson. Um, 
But then we did something else. We tried to find the, if there was a subject, we tried to track down that subject and find out exactly what happened to them. Um, and if there was, and, and then we tried to find out the story of each of the photographers. And um, that was a that was a wonderful, you know, uh, we did it pretty much from our homes, but we contacted people. That, there's a there's a picture of a man on the cover, which I think is the most uh, telling picture in the book. It's a man. It looks like he's well. He was uh, he, he he was an American GI who had just been uh, just just become free, and he's wearing actually a German officer's hat. So of course we had so many questions about what that picture meant, and um, we he he is it turns out he died a few years ago, but his family was uh, is is around in in Colorado. And he, he had left a 18-page account of his capture and um, how he became free. And so these inside stories that no one ever found before was was invaluable and exciting. And you know, uh, almost all of these people who were subjects in the photos and the photographers really didn't talk much about the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the one of the families said people either talk a lot about the war the rest of their lives or they never talk about the war. And it so happens few of them talked about the war. But as we started talking to their families, we got little hints about what they what their fathers knew about the war. Uh, one family recalled that his father took him down to the dark room and showed him how he had, you know, he, he was still very uh, he was very, very much a photographer, even though he was a stockbroker the rest of his life. Um, these were big experiences for these photographers, and they obviously never forgot it. Mm. And in reaching them, getting them to, to talk, what was that like? Oh, I think most of the families were very proud of their fathers. Um, they... Remember, these photographers, these, these men were part of what was called the Army Signal Corps. Mm-hmm. And um, they went out with a camera. They carried a camera instead of a gun. Uh, they actually were issued guns, but as one photographer wrote, you know, you can't shoot pictures and shoot guns at the same time. So most of them actually didn't even carry their guns with them. And um, they are very heroic uh, because they had to be on the front line at all times. There weren't a lot of great pictures you know, miles behind the front line. And so they really put their lives uh, in jeopardy. And I don't think that most of them realized what they were, what they were handing down to future generations. Um, you know, they, they were mostly concerned about their lives. Uh, but, what they, but what they left, these photographs, are very important because they do talk, uh, they do, in a sense, warn us and future generations what total war is all about. Mm. And it's interesting when you use that phrase, total war, because yeah. realistically, we haven't been in anything that would qualify as total war since 1945. You're right, Bob. That's, that's very important. You know, total war really meant if you lived in, in, in Europe or if you lived in um, uh, the Philippines or, you know, you as a civilian were... Uh, suffering food shortages, uh, you could be bombed, uh, you could be killed, um, and and the wars that we have fought from America, in the American standpoint, uh, p- civilians are not endangered. And, We're joined um, in uh, this portion of our program. That, I'm that Bob Solter, and I've been looking forward to our discussion uh, for some time because the in title in of the book that we're going to be talking about. And, 
is uh, anti-vax, there were reframing the vaccination the controversy. Now you say that in, title, in, in May of and in most cases, you, know, you get an immediate reaction. So, we're going to speak with the author of the book, Bernice Hausman. Bernice is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. I'm pleased to say that she is joining us on our program. First of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. In beginning this discussion, most interesting discussion, I'm assuming it's going to be a very interesting book as well. Thank you for providing us some advanced material on this. Boy, that had a number of different iterations of the first one that I was working with for a long time was making sense of vaccine skepticism. Don't forget to download that radio.com app. Remember, the title was all kinds of nifty things with that. Get it downloaded, and you can listen to any show you want to on this station anytime. Or teaches us about medicine and modernity, and that comes up. That I think now is the is the title of the conclusion to the book. So um, the um, reframing the vaccination controversy was a conversation with the editor after she felt that the subtitles were, were just not doing the book justice. And the, uh, just as a funny side note, there was a long discussion about whether or not the the should be in, in the um, – whether it should be the vaccination controversy or whether it should, should be reframing vaccination controversy or reframing vaccination controversies. And I actually did a little crowdsourcing with friends of mine over email, my colleagues of mine, about whether we should have the the, the, the in there or not. It was, it was quite an amusing experience <laughs> in retrospect. The, the issue was really whether or not we were, we were implying there was only one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, it, it, in, in the end, actually, it was a, a colleague of mine who used to be a journalist who said, "You need the the in there because that's going to make it um, that's going to make it more um, less academic sounding and more inviting to uh, the general reader." Which I thought was really an interesting insight, and we went with that. In your background, as I understand, you were vaccinated as a child. Uh, mm-hmm. later as an adult. And in all honesty, I was vaccinated as a child as well. You had your own children vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Why this book? Why this approach? So uh, I study medical controversies in the public sphere, and um, I was finishing up a project and looking around for a new one. And I was also uh and so, and, and at the time, I was I knew that colleagues of mine and friends of mine who had children after the two after two thousand, my kids were born in the mid nineties, that they were even if they were vaccinating, they were worried about vaccinating, and some of them were delaying um, and kind of changing the recommended schedule for their children's vaccines. And uh, I was really interested in that. I was sort of interested in why they why they had those concerns. And at the same time, I was also interested in developing um, a, a collaborative research group with students at Virginia Tech, where I was teaching at the time. And I was I was really interested in in a topic that I that would capture the uh, imagination of my students, who were mostly pre med. The the group of students that I was seeking to engage in this research and um, and teach them about how to do humanities research as a team. And um, and so I thought that this would be a good topic that would draw their interest, and I was right. Since that time, I've had different groups of four to five students every semester since 2010. 
uh, doing research on this topic. And now I have moved that research group to Penn State College of Medicine, and I have medical students working with me um, on a project right now. The vaccination decisions with your own children, you describe them as non-decisions. Why? Because it was... I don't know, it was just what happened when they went to the doctor as infants and children, right? The, somebody would say, well, now it's time for this vaccination, and it was sort of part of the regular set of activities that happened during well-child checkups. And I wasn't in a position at the time to think about um, to think about questioning that. And, um, and my kids also, um, my kids went to daycare. They started in daycare when they were about a year old, each of them. And th- there were requirements to uh, in sending your children to daycare in Virginia, just like sending them to school. So I was a conformist, like most parents, and didn't really think about it. But I also wasn't part. It was interesting because I was I was a, a member of La Leche League, and uh, which is a breastfeeding support organization. And uh, in sort of breastfeeding circles that I was in, there were parents who were questioning vaccines. But I, for some reason, that whole conversation really was not a part of my social networks when my my children were little. And I really only became aware of it. Um, uh, as I said, through through colleagues and friends who were having children um, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years after my kids were born. The people who refuse vaccination, does anybody have any grasp on how strong or how, um, for better, better uh, way of phrasing it, I guess, is how large a group of people this is? It's the the number of one of the ways that we measure this is the number of children who are are fully non-vaccinated. It's still very very small in this country, um, under two percent of all children. Now, that that number or the has been increasing. Um, uh, over, I think there was a there was a recent um, study done that showed that children who were born, um, I'm, I'm going to forget the actual sort of dates, but like basically there were sort of two dates that were chosen in the 2000s, and it was shown that from um, from one one uh, period to the next, the, there was an increase in the number of children who were fully unvaccinated. Now that said. There's also been a decrease over the years in the number of children who uh, are not vaccinated because they lack access to medical care. Um, and this this initiate started with the Vaccines for Children Act in 1993 under Bill Clinton, um, which made um, federal pr- provision of vaccines for children on state um, um, Medicaid uh, and other forms of provision easier, and I think that the the and it, and it increased under the Affordable Care Act under Obama, as uh, insurance companies are are uh, required to provide vaccines that are routinely recommended by um, the CDC. So what you see is you see what what I would what I argue early in the book is that um, the proportion of children who are uh, sort of purposefully non-vaccinated, um, maybe increasing proportionally within the group of children who lack vaccines, but that number overall is very low. Mm. But, you know, the beliefs that the parents are expressing, the parents of those kids who are not vaccinated, some people might think, eh, you know, that's kind of, uh, they're, they're out there. 
so to speak. But their beliefs are not really fringe, are they? Uh, it depends on it depends on who you talk to. There are there are some fringe beliefs that that occur, but of course there are fringe beliefs that occur in all portions of the population. Most of us have some belief somewhere that is kind of um, an outlier. But but no, you, one of the things I try to do in the book is demonstrate that um, that things that bother people about vaccines, the people who are uh, vaccine dissenters. Um, are actually um, quite common or common trends in contemporary culture. So, for example, distrust of um, big pharma and its relationship with medical, um, sort of me- uh, government medical regulatory groups that um, make recommendations for vaccines, distrust of bureaucracy government bureaucrats making decisions for the rest of us, Um, concerns about the environment, concerns about what we do to our bodies in the service of health um, that may in fact cause other harms that we're not tracking. Those kinds of concerns are are not limited to vaccine dissenters, um, but um, it's just that they turn this, this particular set of concerns to vaccines in ways that the majority of the population does not. Mm. But vaccination, has it ever been, I guess, universally accepted in our society? No, no. There was, it's this sort of, there's a kind of a myth that um, vaccines used to be accepted, uh, you know, by the sort of, well, I guess here, I'll start again. Vaccines have been accepted by the majority of the population in this country as a preventative um, health practice. But there have always been um, a significant portion of people who resisted vaccines or who um, uh, were skeptical of vaccines or who vocally dissented. And you can see it. um, So historically, it goes uh, all the way back to the late 18th century when the smallpox vaccine was invented. And especially in the 19th century in both Britain and the United States, there were riots against compulsory vaccination. Um, and then the, the, another a good example is the 1950s when the polio vaccine was um, developed and then um, federally licensed and disseminated in the mid-1950s. There's this uh, sort of mythology about all of these children who were um, who were volunteered by their parents to take part in the the um, the, the vaccine trials, right? So these were the last um, part of the experimentation process to make sure that the vaccine was safe and effective. And it is true that hundreds of thousands of children were volunteered by their parents to get this experimental vaccine, the Salk polio vaccine. But it's also true that hundreds of thousands of parents, children in the catchment areas for the trials were held back by their parents and not allowed to participate um, in getting the experimental vaccine. And so you see there um, this kind of tension between, uh, and and then after, even after it was disseminated, you know, licensed and disseminated, there were immediate concerns that not enough parents were getting their kids vaccinated. There had to be these sort of persuasive campaigns and mechanisms to get people to to be vaccinated. So there's always this tension um, since the invention of vaccines between those who are sort of um, proponents and, uh, you know, kind of zealous adherents and those who are more skeptical, um, who want more time, who want to see how other people respond to the vaccine, um, or who really are just against vaccination and, and do not want to be vaccinated.
That's the voice of Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at Penn State College of Medicine. She's talking with us as the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. More with her as we continue in our program. Bernice Hausman. Bernice is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. I'm pleased to say that she is joining us on our program. What about media coverage of vaccines, vaccination? How has that changed over the years? So that was a really interesting finding. Um, one of the things that I was interested in looking at was, was sort of trying to answer the question of why we have such inflammatory coverage now that um, it tends to be uh, vilifying and shaming, even from very, um, you know, venerated news outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so I had a group of students look back at um, sort of mainstream um, news reporting on vaccination from about 1980 to 2015, and what we really found is that through through the 80s and through the 90s, um, the, the news reporting was really um, what you would expect, um, relatively neutral, and there was actually a lot of sympathy for parents who were concerned about um, vaccination um, dangers. So there were uh, there was very sympathetic reporting about parental concerns with thimerosal, which is a um, mercury-based preservative that used to be used in vaccines in the United States. So the, the, the reporting really changed after 2000, and, and especially, I argue, after 2004, 2006. And there were sort of a variety of, um, of uh, influences on that change, but 9-11 um, happened, and there was an increased uh, concern about bioterrorism um, and the anthrax uh, scare that happened right after 9-11. And, um, and then in 2004, there was an Institute of Medicine report that could not find connections between either thimerosal or MMR and autism. And so the, no the notion was that there was a scientific, there was a set of scientific studies that did a large meta-analysis that demonstrated no connection between those, um, the, the vaccines and autism. And then in 2006, when Gardasil, the um, human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine was um, was uh, licensed and approved and recommended for use among girl, preteen girls, there was a huge backlash when states started to try to mandate the vaccine and parents, especially parents on the Christian right, decided that uh, we're against that. And so then there became this sort of mantra in the news that, um, look at these conservative parents. This is a vaccine that prevents cervical cancer. How can they not be in favor of it? And so there was the there, – and then, of course, there was the introduction of social media and Facebook 2004. And so you have this – this that the change the way we we report and we talk about things in the media and you have these influences that lead us to a situation today where um, much of the reporting is vilifying and shaming um, immediately moving towards uh, towards a um, uh, an analysis that it's got to be anti-vaxxers who are at the at the cause of every outbreak of infectious disease that we have and the truth is always more complicated than that. Bernice Hausman is talking with us on our program. She is the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. As I mentioned in introducing her at the beginning of our discussion, she is the chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. You mentioned the A word a few minutes ago, autism. Mm -hmm. And since 2000, or the turn of this century, 
a lot of the attention that has been given vaccines has focused on the potential connection to autism. What do we really know about that potential connection? Well, it, that depends on who you ask, but mm. um, there, there continue to be um, significant portions of the vaccine-dissenting community that um, are committed to the idea that there's a connection between vaccines and autism. Um, the mainstream biomedical researchers have not found a linkage, and um, and so there's uh, there continues to be a persistent sort of uh, uh, pressure on that point because of this disagreement. Now, what I would say is that what's interesting to a researcher like me, who's a cultural researches the cultural context, is the question of why, in the face of such um, kind of a staunch repudiation of this idea from mainstream biomedicine, um, is there a persistent belief among people? Why, why, do, why do people go to the meetings of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC three times a year where um, a, a group of experts makes recommendations for vaccine use in the American public? Why do people go and at public comment continue to talk about the connection between vaccines and autism? To a, to a group of people who do not believe that there is a there is a scientifically demonstrated link, so there's very very interesting sort of cultural um, cultural sort of uh, conflict going on there, and the persistence of this belief uh, in the in the face of a lack of scientific evidence, or at least a lack of scientific evidence that mainstream scientists um, agree on, is is really a kind of a fascinating cultural um, phenomenon. I don't have an answer for it. Mm. The role of parents takes many forms. And in an age where, you know, we have all this information literally at our fingertips, or at least the access to the information, how does a parent act responsibly when it comes to vaccination? Well, you know, Bob, this goes back to the question you asked me um, initially um, about my non-decisions about vaccinating my own children. Mm -hmm. And um, because I think that that it's a fascinating thing that we're, in general, when it comes to um, um, health practices, we're uh, recommended by many different kinds of experts to do our homework and to to um, to get it, to, to inform ourselves about what we're doing and not do things blindly. And yet with vaccination, we are in fact rewarded by following um, uh, sort of the, pers- the um, recommendations um, of the CDC in uh, following a particular schedule when it comes to vaccinating our children and in fact vaccinating ourselves. What we see is that School entry mandates in this country, which are state-level laws that um, demand that um, children have a certain uh, number and kind of vaccines and boosters before they go to enter into uh, organized uh, daycare or schooling, that those are really what maintains a rather high level of vaccination in this country. Because when we see vaccines that are recommended but then not included in those school entry mandates, uptake is much lower. 
uptake is much, much lower. And so whether or not that is um, an effect of parents paying more attention and doing their homework or just the logistics of vaccination um, that, that mean that they just don't, you know, get around to it is very unclear. But um, you, you see that people's sort of disposition is not necessarily to, to follow through with recommendations unless there's a kind of a, of a situation in which, you, you know, the rubber meets the road and you have to, otherwise your child, child won't be able to go to school. question about parental responsibility, of course, is the, is the focus of one of my chapters. And it really is this, um, parents, for parents who do take that question seriously and, tr- and, and are, are dedicated to, to ensuring that they know everything that goes into their child's bodies, um, they oftentimes run into a wall where it's unclear to them that vaccination is safe based on what they see as the ingredients when they when they research themselves the ingredients of vaccines. Now, on the other hand, you could argue that we have um, history of um, uh, safe monitoring of vaccines once they have been licensed and approved and are routinely given out to millions of children every year that the we have a sort of set of monitoring activities where the safety and efficacy of vaccines is in fact monitored quite closely by the federal government and others and that um, that that monitoring system does not demonstrate significant adverse um, reactions to um, to the routine uh, vaccines of childhood. But that's where you really have a kind of a disagreement among um, vaccine dissenters and mainstream um, biomedical government regulators. Then how do we also begin to um, build a sense of trust when it comes to a realistic discussion about vaccines? You know, you have people who as you pointed out, are dissenters, they're disbelievers, people who think that, you know, basically the people are li- lying to them. Uh, how can how can there be a consensus on this, or can there be? Well, so I don't know that there can be a consensus in agreement about vaccines and their either efficacy or their safety, but to but uh, to start a new a new kind of conversation, that is really the whole purpose of my book. And what I would say as a beginning point, and this is really why I wrote the book and why why I wrote it in the way that I did, why I looked at the things that I looked at, is that we have to actually um, instead of simply saying, well, the science scientific you know evidence demonstrates the safety and efficacy of vaccines for the vast majority of people. We have to look at the reasons why people dissent from vaccination and think about those reasons as meaningful rather than as irrational, wrong, um, or, or uh, you know, uh, purposefully deceitful or misinforming. And I think that, that taking, taking a perspective that suggests that people um, beliefs are based in something, and that that something is is valuable and necessary to understand, rather than something to dismiss, to suggest is crazy. That's the starting point, um, because you can't have a conversation unless there is some kind of common ground that people are coming to this 
set of decisions or this topic um, in a good faith way. Public people who work in public health, people who have to who go into communities where there are outbreaks of infectious disease, know this. They need, they know that in order to be effective in uh, containing an outbreak or maintaining the health of the community, they have to meet people where they are. And that has been this really interesting problem with vaccine descent, is that a, a, an inability or, or a, um, a refusal to meet people where they are and, and uh, address the concerns, the specific concerns that they have in a meaningful way. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge after our 8 o'clock update. Yep. Those clocks went ahead an hour overnight. Hopefully you were on time. Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at Penn State College of Medicine. She's talking with us as the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. What have you learned about yourself um, as you've been conducting this research? So I, um, I have really learned that to, to sort of set aside my own views and set aside my own inclination to um, to think about other people's views that I disagree with as crazy uh, or irrational, and to really try to understand the logic behind the views of people that I don't agree with. And to make a space, in a way, for... Um, to make a space in which I, I try to identify at some something with the, the uh, with the, the the positions of people that um, that are acting differently than I do with respect to this question, the research that I conducted prior to um, to this book, I, I, I wrote two books about uh, breastfeeding, and I wrote those books as an advocate uh, as well as a researcher, and. Uh, in this case, when I was doing, so I was not really neutral in the same way that I am now um, about vaccination. Although those those that previous research did teach, give me some of the skills that I use now in this current research. But taking a neutral position with respect to vaccines in order to understand the controversy has has really changed the way that I think about. Um, the way that I go about my research, it's made me more of an anthropologist, more of a, not an observer, but when I engage in these conversations, I um, I have to really bracket and put aside my own personal views. Final question for you, because this is um, an area that has been in the news in different areas of the country. Um, in New Jersey, this was a huge issue recently at the uh, state house mm-hmm. where um, there was a move to abolish exemptions the non-medical exemptions exactly. yes yeah so that's actually been i think we're in the in the middle of a, a really interesting kind of natural experiment with respect to that um, new york um, got rid of its non-medical exemptions this year. California did that in 2016. Maine uh, has done so, but I think it will take effect next year or the year after. Um, and I believe Washington State got rid of non-medical exemptions with respect to measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR. So it's an interesting, historically, 
Non-medical exemptions have worked to dissipate political dissent about vaccination by allowing some people who are really ideologically or otherwise um, opposed to vaccination a kind of an out um, so that the vast majority of people will be vaccinated and the mandate will hold. So it's kind of like you allow some people to opt out in order to ensure that most people opt in. The the So historically, it's worked that way since the first conscientious objector laws were passed in Great Britain in 1898. So we will see whether or not in this country now, given this sort of begin the changes in the laws, whether or not um, the there's there's a change in the way that these um, vaccine mandates work politically. My apprehension is that by you know people who are vac- who are against vaccination are very very worried about um, the uh, increasing. Uh, uh, mandates by restricting the the non medical exemptions, and it has. I think it's going to lead to increased political dissent from vaccination because people are going to feel backed up against a wall, and you see that in the incredibly vociferous dissent that occurs when this legislation is considered at the state level. I also think that you will see, as we have seen in California, an increase in medical exemptions and an increase in homeschooling, as the the law can only cover those children who are in organized organized schools. And so, the question of whether or not the, that outcome is worth the marginal increase in vaccination levels, um, I think we'll we will be able to track that and study that. In the future, states like New Jersey and New York have actually extremely high levels of vaccination, and um, the question of whether these um, these laws are going to give us higher levels, um, I think, is uh, remains to be seen. Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine and the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy, our guest in this portion of our program. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful discussion. Certainly the best with this book and with your work. Thank you. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program, and I've been looking forward to speaking with Colin O'Mara for some time. He's president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joining us on our program, talk with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Bob, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, how do you describe um, what the fund has has been about? Yeah, so, I mean, for your listeners, the easiest way is, is if they've ever gone to a park or a, a playground or uh, a state park or a national park or a forest or a wildlife refuge, they've benefited from this program. The Land and Water Conservation Fund takes a small amount of money off of royalties from offshore oil and gas development and then invests it in projects across the country. There's been projects in every single county and across the entire country, more than 41,000 projects um, that have been done through this program in the past 50 years. And what is exactly is happening with this now? So there is a, is a great bipartisan effort in a, in a time where there isn't a lot of bipartisanship um, to permanently authorize the program, which means allow it to kind of be funded. But now there's a big bipartisan push uh, in, the, in, the, in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to 
permanently fund it. Um, the program's supposed to get $900 million a year, um, which is a portion to the state for federal agencies. It's only ever been fully funded twice. Um, and so there is a big push right now to try to make sure that, that those resources are there because at a time when more kids are looking at screens and folks are increasingly living, um, and spending most of the time indoors, but and the need to have great outdoor places for folks to recreate um, is more important than ever. You say it's only been fully funded twice? Yeah, and it's in, in 54-year history, um, wow. in 1998 and 2001. And that was really specifically around a couple projects in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, that they were trying to, it was a mine they were, they were basically bought after um, they kind of reached a negotiation that having having <laughs> having pretty significant uh, gold mining operations in the just outside of Yellowstone wasn't really a good idea. Um, but yeah, but only twice in the 50 years. But I mean, this is protecting, you know, is, am I overstating this to think, this is protecting some pretty important stuff. Yeah, I had a, I had a chance to testify um, before the the Senate the other day on this, and I, and I said, like, this, this is how you protect the places that make America America. And you know, in the fifty years since the program started, um, our population has gone up by more than one hundred and thirty million people. <laughs> we, we've we've lost you know eighty ninety million acres of outdoor spaces to development and housing and energy development and roads. Um, and so this is like the one program that works across the entire country to try to make sure that those special places are available. So no matter what zip code you, in, you're, you live in, no matter what your income is, you can enjoy kind of the amazing outdoor recreation that um, really just makes America unique in the world. Mm. Wow. I mean, are there, there numbers in terms of what outdoor recreation means like to the economy and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We didn't start tracking it until about in the last, in the last 10 years. But it's an $887 billion, billion with a B, um, billion-dollar economy. It supports 7.6 million jobs across the country. And the interesting thing is that these are jobs that are in you know, cities that are close to destinations, but also in some of the most rural communities in the country. These are folks that are you know, running you know, hotels or restaurants or uh, retail shops or you know. Uh, fish and tackle shops or you know, the whole range of support services that are, are needed when folks want to uh, to travel. And it's not just around the you know the big the famous you know, national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Tetons or you know, Zion or Bryce or the, the places in Utah. It's you know jobs that support in places like Jamaica Bay, right? When folks want to go visit the refuge there and they and they they're gonna have a meal or maybe they run a maybe they run a kayak or a canoe. Um, it's all those all those additional jobs that we would not have if it wasn't for programs like this protecting special places for all of us. Mm. We're talking on our program with Colin O'Mara, who is president CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joined us on our program talking with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Now, this legislation, what's the likelihood, if this passes both houses of Congress, of this actually being signed into law by the president? I think he, I mean, the interesting thing with the president is that if you can get it to his desk, he's actually signed <laughs> most things, um, because that also means you got through the Republican Senate in the process. And this is one of those pro- programs that's interesting because it does benefit everybody. And so you have very conservative senators from like Western states that are huge champions of, of this program, as well as some of the most progressive members, you know, from the, from like the New York delegation. And so it's, I think it's, it's one of those areas that shows that you know, there are some things left in Washington, maybe not many, that can still unite us across parties and having, you know, 
high quality outdoor spaces and more kids outdoors and you know protecting our cultural heritage does seem to be one of those and you know there's still some folks that are concerned about the price tag or you know but there's you know the, the amount of money we spend on other things in the federal government that really don't always benefit everybody um, this is one of those programs that gives everybody a shot to to enjoy the great outdoors and what role can people who are listening to our discussion today play in this yeah, I think New York's benefited incredibly um, well. I mean, the city itself's got, I think, $350 million worth of projects in the last few decades. Anyone that's enjoyed, like, the like the boardwalks and the trails around, like, the Rockways or, like, at, at the um, at Coney Island, uh, like, Comente Park, um, Battery Park, I mean, all these, you know, kind of major destinations um, benefited from this program. And if they get an opportunity, I mean, just letting their, their, their Congress, the member of Congress know, um, some folks, Ignatia Velasquez has been on the committee. She's been a leading champion of the uh, of the program for a long time. Um, obviously, Senator Schumer, um, in his leadership role, um, has been pushing for this and been a great champion as well. But if they do have a chance to to you know, reach out to their member of Congress, um, that's always helpful to say this is important because we want to have these great places for the to be protected for the future. Um, there's a lot of new members for those of your listeners that are kind of northern New Jersey. Uh, a lot of those members are new. Uh, letting them know that it's important. Um, they're trying to find their way and find the bathrooms and all the challenges of, <laughs> of being in, in D.C. Um, but I think I think just showing that it's, you know, this is an American issue. This isn't Republican. This isn't Democrat. And I think most folks want to have strong, vibrant local economies. Um, I think the more they hear that from us, the better. If they want to visit our website, um, it's the National Wildlife Federation, NWF. Dot org, nwf.org, and um, there's information about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and we can do everything for folks if they want to contact their congressman or send them something on Twitter, and we can help with all of that. Um, but again, this is the kind of, you know, it's, it's the kind of, the, it's lowercase p politics, right? This is just saying, hey, let's, let's do this good thing that you guys are fighting over so many other things. Colin O'Mara, who is president CEO of National Wildlife Federation on the web at nwf.org. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing these insights. This is something we're definitely going to be watching. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us on our program this Sunday morning. You know what program's coming up next. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law.